Hi, I'm Hedgeye's founder, Keith McCullough. Thanks for listening to this real conversation. If you like what you hear, you will love our investing research. We bring transparency, accountability, and actionable investing ideas to investors big and small. I'll put our investing process and team up against anyone in the world. Please visit Hedgeye.com to subscribe and learn a better way to invest. All right, welcome to day two. Let's go. This is the uh, Investing Summit, again, the ninth that we've had yesterday. I think we established the bear case. I know we established the bear case. We've established the bear case. What I wanted to do with one of the best and having her lead off today. Uh, welcome, Lizanne Saunders. Hi, Keith. How are you? Good, good. I wanted good. to I wanted to establish the bull case with you because. Um, oh, really? With me? <laughs> <laughs> you get. No, I, I actually okay. wanted I wanted to like you know you get the bull case. You know you get pitched to you all the time. You get all the questions. Um, you're all over the place uh, these days. You're doing a fantastic job. I might add. On, on, on Twitter in terms of like a daily grind so that people are well aware and they're equipped um, and, and you've not been a bull. So, uh, but I, I did want to get, I, I wanted to say, okay, like, like is there a top bull case? Is there, is there the next narrative? Like, what do you think the bull case is at this point? So I think the bull case uh, needs some time still. But if you, uh, as you know, Keith, I, I spent a lot of time looking at sentiment indicators, both behavioral indicators as well as attitudinal indicators. And I think on the attitudinal side, whether it's investors intelligence, AAII, other survey-based data, all the anecdotes that, that we see um, inside our $8 trillion worth of retail client assets suggests that on the attitudinal side, we're, we're right around the kind of washout levels that you would typically see. The problem is we, we haven't quite yet seen the commensurate behavioral uh, shift. So even using AAII, which recently saw an all-time record low in percentage of bullishness, the problem is that equity exposure of that same uh, cohort, although down from around 70% or so at 63%, is not the kind of washout you would typically see. And if you look at flow of funds data, you still see equity exposure more than 60%. So I, I think investors are there in what they're saying, but not quite yet in, in behavior. But if you add to the mix technical indicators, some breadth indicators, studies associated with them, I'd say the outlook looks pretty decent looking at a year. Yeah. I just think the next couple of months um, we're not out of the woods. This feels very fall of 08 uh, to me, it, just in terms of what the calendar looks like, but also what the near-term volatility looks like. Yeah, the, uh, the anything uh, after September uh, of 08 is not a friendly uh, reminder. But, you know, look, I was looking at these charts that you sent, sent, sent along. I don't know if the team can pop them up there on, on slide six of of Lizanne's most recent uh, report, which is great, uh, and it gets right into it. It's called Ripples from Surging Dollar. Um, one takeaway on the AAII, which is just one way to read sediment, um, is that you go there, but you actually stay there. If it is 07 into 08, you went there, and I remember this as, as, as clear as day, particularly in late 07 and throughout 08, people are like, oh, people are bearish, that's the bull case. But they actually just stayed concerned because they should have been because we're going into a recession. Now, um, can you take me from that point uh, and maybe lift off? Because most people think that as soon as the Fed turns dovish, like they did in 08 or like they did in the recession of 01, as soon as they go dovish, it's time to buy. Um, well, not necessarily. And it's also a question of how you define dovish. Um, and, and maybe the, the, the term being used more frequently lately is, the, is pivot. 
And certainly in mid-June, the narrative was that because inflation had started to roll over and the futures market suggested the Fed might be in rate cutting mode as early as the first half of 2023, I, I just didn't get that narrative at all. I didn't understand it because it usually had a bullish wrapper around it. Yet the the for the Fed to have the green light to go from aggressive rate hikes to rate cuts probably meant a more dire economic scenario than what we faced in mid-June um, and or some sort of financial instability serious problem. And I think that's what Powell pushed back on most aggressively in his Jackson Hole speech and then subsequent to that. There are a lot of steps between where the Fed is right now and rate cuts. The first is the data suggesting they can lessen the pace of, of hikes instead of 75, maybe 50 or 25, you know, pull an RBA and and maybe hike to a lesser degree than what's built into expectations. Then the next step is sort of taking a breather, taking a pause, lifting their foot off the brake. But what they've really been trying to be clear about is once they get to their destination, wherever it is, if it's four, six or four five, we think maybe something a little bit lower than that, they're going to stay a, a while in the interest of not having the fits and starts of monetary policy like in the 70s leading into the um, early 80s. So uh, I think, yeah, you probably get relief rallies if, if you get a sense of a little bit less hawkishness on the part of the Fed. But the the path from here to rate cuts, um, I don't think is as smooth as certainly what people thought in in, in mid-June. Yeah, the um, I mean, I thought this was a great one-liner that you put, you know, when you wish upon a pivot, and, 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 and I always say this, but again, hope is not a risk management process, and having historical context like you have, which, by the way, not many people have, uh, and moreover, if they have it, you know, you can study history. doesn't mean that you worked through it, lived through it. Uh, I believe that for you and I, this is our third uh, <laughs> getting into a potential recession on the first two, and then actually having one, you know, the, the 2001 you know, recession that we had, as you well know, was quite shallow. Yeah. So, so and, and I think and, it was I don't think it would have happened were it not for the, the crash in the market. I think that was a market driven recession, because at that time, the, the Buffett indicator, as it's called, total market cap to GDP was at an all time record high. So I think just the the weight of the cracking of the market was sufficient enough to bring the economy down. But to your point, it was a very mild and fairly short lived uh, recession. So uh, I, I don't think I certainly don't think that that's a proxy for the the environment we're in now. Yeah, one of the um, and one of the big reasons for that, uh, you know, that reflexivity, if you will, as Soros would say, is that market crashes. Again, they perpetuate negative wealth effect in as much as market bubbles you know, give you positive GDP impact on the way up. We've done a lot of work on this. I mean, it's, we, we, by our uh, calculus, we're at, it was 245 basis points in the fourth quarter last year of, of GDP that was five and a half. So basically half the number was wealth effect. So you're mm -hmm. spending, you're traveling, and, and you had this pandemic behind you, the reopening. There's so many reasons why we had the all-time bubble highs in the, well, the Russell 2000 peaked on the same day as, as Bitcoin. Literally, November the 8th. I mean, it's, it was all kind of, sit, not kind of, it was absolutely sitting right there. And now we go a year forward, and that 250 basis points, I mean, we have it coming out of GDP at a very quick clip. I mean, 130 basis points out of this coming quarter alone. That's, 
have you done, uh, how much work have you done on that? One, do you agree with it? Two, um, you know, how much work do you do on the behavioral side of that, your, your, wealth, your wealth effect? Oh, there's, there's no question about it. And when you look at, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the flow of funds uh, data and the, it's, it's slightly off the record high, but we were at a record high percent exposure to equities. And if you track that against subsequent 10-year returns and break household equity exposure, which ties into the wealth effect, into uh, quintiles, we're in the highest quintile still, even with the slight rolling over of equity exposure, which doesn't put you in negative territory in terms of subsequent 10-year returns, but in the low to mid single digit range, which I think is consistent probably with, with most assumptions. Now, the only benefit to more severity if we get it in the bear market is that it then maybe lifts the likelihood of something a bit better than that on a forward-looking 10-year uh, basis. But uh, I, I don't know if I look at it as in, in as granular a way as you do in terms of, of quarterly contribution to GDP, but I will say the other big contributor to what looks to be a better third quarter GDP than either of the first two quarters was the exports, the net exports uh, component. That it wasn't so much that it was artificially boosted, it's a net number, but I think that's in the rearview mirror. So I think we're gonna get possibly a pop in third quarter GDP, largely because of that net exports component that is absolutely not going to carry into the fourth quarter. And that's well put, and I appreciate that, you know, like there are a lot of different ways to get to different answers. We can have different answers. But again, directionally, I think it's the most important thing. If we get the rate of change right directionally, you don't have to, like my, my, comp- my, my competing nowcast to the Atlanta Fed doesn't have to be right to the basis point. It just has to be right directionally in terms of the rate of change. So the rate of change on, like, because so we have the behavioral point, we have 01 coming out of the 1999 bubble. We have this, I think, was a raging bubble across many different things that the world had never seen before. So you have wealth effect. But back to 01, again, if you didn't even know that that there was a recession, which was hard to see, it was very easy to see the profit recession. Now, um, there there is not much empirical evidence to say that if your revenue growth slows and your earnings slow, and moreover, they slow to negative year-over-year growth in earnings, in this case, in earnings, that there's not going to be a stock market collapse and crash greater than the one w- that we've already seen. If you look at slide 112 here, uh, we're showing, uh, our team shows that, that's corporate earnings versus recessions. Um, in 01, like that was a 48% drop in earnings. Um, how, how have you thought about, again, I hate the average of things, uh, Lizanne, because it's always the particular thing. Like, again, I'm trying to get the, the particular slowdown right because I know that earnings are going to be a disaster. I don't know if they're yeah. going to be, you know, currently the streets looking at, uh, they used to have it at up 10 in the third quarter. Now it's, I think, up three. But if you take out energy, it's down three. Um, it's, it's going from up 10 to down something in the, in the mid-single digits, at least, I think. That would be the I bull case. I think at least. How, do you, how yeah. do you think about that? And, 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 and altogether, do you, do you believe that the profit recession in and of itself is plenty enough to keep uh, this bear market going? Well, I think this is the, the next significant hurdle that the market's going to have to get through. I think the re-rating of estimates on the downside for the second half of this year into the first half of next year is still fairly in an early uh, stage. Uh, you've got, if you just look at calendar year numbers and S&P earnings, I think you're 208 in 2021. Estimate is around 223 now for calendar year 2022. And that's down from about 230 where it was in uh, in June. 
And I, I think the path of least resistance is is still down. I think analysts are are in a, a tricky spot because of the unique nature of this cycle, the, the the fact that during the worst part of the pandemic, a record number of companies didn't just guide down, they completely withdrew guidance. And what that set up was analysts, absent information that they would normally have, erred on the side of keeping estimates really, really low. And with each subsequent quarter of record or near record beat rates and record or near record percent by which companies are beating, they were not extrapolating to the degree that they probably should have. So the bar was consistently set too low. I think now it's a bit of a mirror image in that, again, it's there are unique uncertainties in the current environment. And I think analysts are now somewhat equally reticent to drop numbers to reflect the obvious deterioration from a macro perspective. But I do think the color that we're going to get in third quarter earnings, especially the big picture issues on pricing power, profit margins, impact of uh, of the strong dollar, if you're not a hedger, you have a high percentage of, of sales coming from overseas. And I think the, the next step here is another uh, re-rating of, of earnings, maybe not to sort of epic levels of decline like we saw in 2008, but something south of, of where we are right now. Yeah, south is the point. And when you have a, a credit market that's frozen and it's south, and we have what we were calling yesterday, I think, Cajotes, who's definitely sides on the, I shouldn't say he's just sides on the bearish side of things. He tries to find frauds, which are important to find. Um, but we're, we're talking about you know, the reverse zombification of things. Because during 08, you know, like, so, so let's just, we've already checked in on 0001. You can have a shallow recession. You can have a deep profit recession alongside of it. You can come out of a bubble altogether. There's a lot of different components. Every single market crash is different. But 08, since 08, I think many can make the case that, you know, with the Fed behind you, we've zombified a lot of things that could easily become zombies. You know, if yeah. the Fed's tightening into this one, what we have negative profit growth, we don't know what it's going to be. Let's just say that you and I are right directionally, but we don't know how bad. We know that the street doesn't have the numbers right. That means the CFOs don't have the numbers right. Okay, now you got a problem. Now you got to go get some credit. i gotta, I got to fill some gaps. I'm a profitless company or I'm levered out the wazoo <laughs> pro-cyclically. Um, how do you think about that component of it? Oh, well, you, you did have a record high uh, percentage of zombie companies, especially in lower quality indexes like Russell 2000. It was significantly lower in an index like S&P 600 because they have that quality and profitability filter. You have seen that roll over because we got enough of a lift in earnings coming out of the lockdown phase of the pandemic that the metrics typically used to define whether you're a zombie or not did improve a little bit but right. now we're in now we're in a weaker part of the economic cycle and we're we're sort of past that initial post lockdown boost in earnings and now i think things get worse from here i also think that broadly as we already essentially touched on um, the Fed put has been put to bed, at least as it relates to simple weakness or volatility in the market. Financial system instability is a is a different thing, and that the Fed is making an important distinction between market volatility and system instability. But even significant carnage, where the 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 zombies start ceasing to exist, I don't think is going to bring the cap cavalry in to save that. So we're, we're, we're surprisingly not yet experiencing a lot of that. Um, haven't maybe seen the, the blowout and credit spreads that you might expect given everything else 
going on. Um, you haven't seen a, a huge lift in bankruptcies, but I, I, I think it gets worse before it gets better from here. Yeah, the, uh, what's it, it, the reason why I asked, by the way, on slide 111, we show that stylized model of uh, reverse and secular zombification. It's a mouthful. Uh, but the, you know, pretty much every market bounce, including this morning's, which was tiny, uh, is led by what I call, you know, I, I call it bear shit. But, I mean, they're, they're, it's just the crap. It's this stuff, you know, yeah. and Goldman's making a lot of money on it because you can trade options on the baskets. But whether it be the Bitcoin-sensitive basket, the profitless tech basket, the most shorted basket, uh, the most levered company basket, you know, these are all companies that in the prior uh, declines, let's say coming out of 2018, you know, when, when Powell was tightening into a slowdown, then he stopped. Well, him stopping, and that's why people are addicted to the pivot, he was stopping, but it was still an economic expansion, albeit a slower right. one. But he was really like giving the green light on going to buy anything, right. including you know, eventually meme stocks. You know? So we're at a very different point and if every market rally, including two hour long ones, or one this morning's was 45 minutes, you know, is based on buying that, like, where are we really going here? Well, not only is the market addicted to the pivot, but it's addicted to not just we need to buy on dips, but we need to, to buy, um, you know, the, the prior speculative bubble leadership areas. And yeah. they have not yet been you know, disabused of this notion that, in any cycle, even maybe there's no such thing as a normal cycle, but in, in any cycle, especially when you have a dual cycle where you have the combination of a bear market and a recession that have some you know overlap in terms of, of timing, it tends to usher in a new kind of leadership, whether it's a, a shift in sector-based leadership or factor-based leadership. And for now, anyway, it's not just the addiction to the pivot, but the knee-jerk reaction is going back into those spec bubble areas, all of which, to your point, have a very low-quality theme associated with them. Yeah. Um, and we're, and we're narrative-driven more than fundamentally driven. But there still is that cohort of what two years ago were newly minted day traders. They don't have a long history of experience in market cycles and that knee-jerk reaction is to go back. And there are, by the way, you know this, there are times where going down the quality spectrum makes sense. Um, that was the right thing to do in late 2020, heading into 2021, in conjunction to a large degree with the positive vaccine news. Because when you have not just the pricing in of an acceleration in growth, but a more parabolic pickup in growth unique to the pandemic and okay, we might really be getting out of the woods, then yes, you, that's where the, the leverage is figuratively down the quality spectrum. But when we saw that low quality bias in the mid-June to mid-August rally, that didn't make a lot of sense. And, and our message was this is decidedly not the time to chase this low quality uh, trade. That's sort of a vestige of, of a time in the past. Yeah, I think that that's a, you're, you're um, you know, you've always been this way, but you're like encyclopedic when you're speaking, like all the charts that I know are in my head as you're speaking. She's, uh, you know, it's chronological, <laughs> it's empirical, but at the same time you have the ability to communicate it in English. And I think that most people are like, ah, I like her. She makes sense, you know. Like it's like, you know, it's it's a it's a really good thing to 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 say. Okay, what you thought 
you know, essentially you're saying, okay, look at slide, let's, let's put a slide around what you just said. Slide 13, which is year, year over year GDP. When you went for the darkest of times, which is minus nine GDP, and then you provided the most stimulus in the history of the world ahead of the biggest GDP number that you and I have ever written down uh, in any of our models, which is up 12 and a half, of course you can buy anything because yeah. you have the economic acceleration behind you. Yeah. Now you're going from 12 to five to one to zero to negative. Which is and you're tightening. <laughs> Which is like... right. You're you're tightening into a. First of all, you're tightening not because of the prospect of inflation, but inflation that is raging and already here, while also facing the cost push, downward pressure on demand associated with the same inflation. And uh, I don't. I, I try not to be a, a significant Fed critic. Uh, we we can all talk about mistakes that they most likely made and and they stayed, you know, easy too long and uh, you know, an unforced era and this would have been better, but but it is what it is. Here we sit. That's all in the past. Have fun if that's your goal is to be the loudest most vocal fed critic, but where do we go from here? What happens um at at this point? And I just think that the message that the fed I think has yet to convince the market of is this is not going to be fits and, and starts. They're they're drawing the distinction between financial markets volatility and financial system instability, also drawing the line between less liquidity or illiquidity and dysfunction. And mm -hmm. it's amazing to me that now there's this sort of cheering of what's happened in the UK recently and almost hoping Oof. for a serious financial system accident because then the Fed steps in and we're, you know, we're off to the races again. I also think and this is a bigger picture issue. I think there are really important secular shifts happening in, in just what our world looks like and the global economy and the nature of inflation drivers, as well as the seeming shift from capital basically being fully in control to now labor more controlled demographics, not so much deglobalization, but regionalization. And I just don't think we're we're looking at what's going on with a broad enough uh, lens, especially back to what we talked about just a moment ago, when you see some of the, the trading behavior that kicks back in so quickly. Yeah, that um, again, uh, classy of you to say, because uh, you aren't, uh... Well, I'm not really a Fed critic either, but uh, <laughs> we only have about 8,000 Fed cartoons. But the, the, it, it's become a cartoon. Like, quite literally, it's a cartoon. Uh, the Bank of England, this morning on the Macro Show, I just gave the basic, uh, I'll do it again. You, this is what we trained a whole generation of investors to hear, right? And then, and then yesterday, the dude comes out and, and, and puts it down. Nope, nope, you only have three days left. You only have three days left. But then the FT came out and said, well, behind the scenes, they're saying maybe they'll be flexible. So, you know, we, we, we don't even know what voices necessarily to, uh, to listen to. Well, I mean, it's what we do know, again, it doesn't take much past one cycle of experience. The greatest gift that we can have in this game, if we're so willing to play it, is to play it across multiple cycles. Mm -hmm. You know, so again, if you're new, if you're a noob and you got a trading account at Robinhood in 2000, you don't remember 08. 
You don't remember what it looked like when the Bernanke was panicking and, and brought in Hank, the market tank, Paulson. You had the Treasury holding hands, the Goldman guy holding hands with the Fed. I mean, again, I'm, not, I'm never critical of the Fed. But, but the, the panic of a central bank is worse than anything. I mean, there's, oh, yeah. And that's what the Bank of England just established as a, as a new, I, I suppose, a precedent. I mean, I guess the good news is that the Fed isn't panicking. They've been, um, I don't even know if it's a compliment. It's like, we're taking this boat that we're going to take the Titanic right towards where the end of the movie ends, and we're going to be we're going to be doing it with conviction, and we're going to do it because uh, we're righteous. <laughs> just I can't compliment that, but it is better than panicking, you know, like the Bank of England's doing. Yeah, I, you know, panic is one of the worst things investors can do. It's 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 equally bad if the the Fed does it, and and at least for now they're really trying to push back on the notion that. They're not going to panic here unless it's serious market instability, not the kind of volatility uh, that we have seen. And, and even though, you know, some view what's happened in the UK as, as a bit of a, a, a proxy, the Fed is at least trying to uh, push back on this notion that they're going to panic into overly easy policy, especially given that they're, they're not seeing yet the kind of contraction in, in the inflation data. Yeah, well, the, the inflation... It, the, as, as far as the eye can see, it's always been a three-legged stool. All of our capital markets are built on it. And yes, the Fed is 100% accountable or should be accountable for it. There's inflation, there's employment, price stability, employment, and where is the stock market and credit market? You know, currently, we're saying we don't care about two of those legs because we don't see the recession. We're on the Titanic. We just don't know. Uh, and by the way, we do see the inflation situation. It's starting to ameliorate here. It's starting to come up. I was using this analogy of, um, of, of one of the great lessons in, in aviation, where um, a pilot, you know, in the 19, late 1970s, it was, uh, unfortunately, this doesn't end well. He's sitting there, wow, the, the landing gear was on. He didn't think the landing gear was coming down. Uh, and the landing gear is inflation. It's like, well, we got to fix that. we got to fix that. So they, so they start to circle. They start to circle. They're over, uh, I think, Cleveland. Uh, all of a sudden, the co-pilot's like, well, you know, we're running out of gas. It's like, I don't, we got to fix this. We got to make sure that the mm -hmm. landing gear is there. And, uh, you know, the gas is the recession. And, and to me, that's exactly, and by the time, obviously, the guy runs out of gas, it's a true story, lands right in the middle of a, uh, a neighborhood, kills a bunch of people, including his co-pilot, and um, the landing gear was, was where it was supposed to be. You know, it's not. Well, it's 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 not it's not a bad a analogy if you have my outlook. I, I like. I mean, it's. I, I think we're in a recession. Never mind going into recession. It's we don't have any fuel left, and we're just going to keep looking at the landing gear. Well, another another analogy is, you know, the, the the Fed's in the driver's seat, but keying decision monetary policy decision making off of what they see in the rearview mirror because the in, in to a large degree inflation is a, is a lagging indicator so they're making monetary policy decisions based on the lagging indicator of inflation knowing full well that the effects of monetary policy are a year plus in the future so right. if you if you sort of do the math of the the lag data they're relying on to make decisions and the forward effect of what they're going to do, it's pretty clear that that at, at best you're going to hit some, you know, serious, serious potholes in the roll road, if not have an accident. And I agree with you. I think I think a recession being already underway is more likely than not. And that's just the nature of 
how recessions are dated. You know, the NBER, when their business cycle dating committee sits in the room and say, says, you know, okay, we're in one, simultaneously, they, they backdate the start point. And what they do is they go back to the peak in the aggregate data that they're tracking, which is part of the reason why people miss the notion of a recession, because mm -hmm. whether they'll point to just payrolls while they're still rising, or they, they look in level terms instead of in trend terms, instead of in inflection point terms, and they, uh, and they miss it. So I think unless you think in terms of the metrics that are used primarily to, to decide on and date recessions, being industrial production, overall business sales, personal income, and payrolls, unless you think from here, we're gonna get another significant lift before rolling over again, then it's distinctly possible that, that we find out down the road that as you and I were having this conversation, we were already in one. Yeah, I, I want to get to uh, employment uh, right after this, uh, showing a couple of these pictures. And I do appreciate that, uh, and you see how we did that. I hope you all noticed. Lizanne and I didn't even talk about inflation until we were 18 minutes in. Because that's, that's yesterday. That's for me. <laughs> that's, ye that's yesterday's news. Right. You know, slide 15 shows our nowcast. We don't have inflation. If you think it's going to fall below seven anytime soon, we don't have that happening until the second quarter of next year, and it's still going to be at 6.67, if, if that's right, due to a lot of the lagging indicators that the Fed should be well aware of that led us on the way up. Um, but here's another thing, like slide 119, we'd like to show these two slides. I think it's, if you think like a Fed head, like what's wrong with you, like slide 119, we're only three months into this, and you're only 0.8% off. Like if you look at slide 120, the magnitude relative to other, if, if you're really committed to history and trying to take inflation down from the cycle peaks, wow, you've got a long way to go. But you don't, because as soon as labor hits the body bags, you know, they're going to start to turn tail, I guess, is the assumption. So that's my question, my next question on employment. Uh, slide 95. Let's just say it's like the 1970s. We're just, people just want to talk about whatever it is. We have some type of a high price environment. Well, okay, if you just look at the level of employment, first of all, it's, you know, okay, everything's, it's like 1975, oh, shit. I was born in 1975, and it was bad. You know, it was really bad. But right before that, if you just looked at uh, labor, it was fine. Right before the 1980 recession, labor was fine. Yep. <laughs> I mean, what could possibly go wrong? We're going to land in Cleveland. And not only that, if you're if you're in the moment and you're looking at at, at things like payroll statistics, I, I think you're missing a couple of things. One, um, how highly subject to revision they are, especially when you're at or near or in an inflection point in the economy. Just the last two recessions, the very short-lived but painful COVID recession, and then the, the 08 financial crisis, you subsequently found out that a, in each case, more than a million payroll jobs uh, didn't exist. They were revised out. You didn't know that at the time, obviously. Some of that has to do with the birth-death model that tends to, to overestimate uh, payrolls. But I think you're, you've already started to see cracks under the surface. In addition to just payroll growth still being positive, but on a decelerating pace, obviously. But you know what's picked up in the household survey, multiple job holders, um, the fact that you've, you've had two big down months in the household survey, only about a, a half a million jobs created as measured by the household survey in the last six months versus more than two million from the establishment survey. At inflection or near inflection points, the household survey 
tends to do a better job yep. of expressing the, the real picture, not to mention things like the four months in a row of Challenger Gray layoff announcements up, all the anecdotal information that we're seeing in terms of um, hiring freezes. That all eventually feeds into weaker labor data. And by the way, that's what the Fed wants to see. I mean, they want to, they'd love to perfectly thread the needle and crush job openings without a significant move up in the unemployment rate. That's a pretty narrow, um, you know, hole in that needle. But um, a weaker labor market, and by the way, a weaker stock market and volatility across markets is not a bug of what the Fed is doing. It's a feature yep. of what the Fed is doing in their interest in, in tightening financial conditions because they know monetary policy is a blunt instrument. They, they can't do anything directly to tackle energy prices or food prices, but they can do what they can to, to squash aggregate demand. And in this case, through tighter financial conditions, which equity market weakness, volatility, bond market weakness, volatility, sort of aids that cause. It, yep. It's not, it's there, at this point, it's not a downside. Yeah, the, 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 again, uh, encyclopedic. I mean, look at what she just said is on slide 96 of our slide deck. It shows you the difference between the establishment survey and the household survey. And on the right side, anybody can understand this, particularly if you're one of the people that is looking for a second job to fill the gaps on your cost of living. I mean, these are, these, these are numbers that the Fed has. It's just unfortunate that they don't start with them. Um, and, and again, it's, it's all part of the same thing. That the economic conditions tighten on Main Street. You can see it across any metric you want to look at in rate of change terms. They look at the levels. That's their problem, not mine. Um, again, being short, it's fine for me. It's fine for my family. It's fine for Hedge Nation if they're listening. Um, but it's not good for the people. You know, so their expectations are going the wrong way and have been for a while. Now corporate expectations, not even new either. This, look at any sediment survey from a CEO. They've completely collapsed <laughs> to levels like never seen before. So the next part of the movie is you get fired. And then the next part of the movie is that the Fed says, oh, we got it. But there's no, I guess the point we're trying to make, you and I, is that when they get to that point, it's actually still a real point. The right. CEO doesn't all of a sudden become confident. You get your job back, and then you start spending again. It doesn't, can you walk through that little part? And then I want to get to other people's questions, by the way. Like that last part of the movie in a cycle where, okay, shit, now I'm, it's the difference between a depression, right? Then your boss loses his, his or her job. Right. But in a recession, the part where you're losing your job, where never in the history of markets is that a good thing. Right. And, you know, what's interesting is, I don't know if you saw it, there was a, I think it was a Harris poll recently of a broad swath of, I don't think it was an investor base for the poll. I think it was just broader individuals, consumers. And it came in at 50-50 in terms of what do you think is the more toxic problem? Would you rather have a, a recession and have that help bring down inflation? Or would you rather avoid a recession, even though you'd have to suffer inflation? And it was 50-50. Really? So, hmm. Yeah, which surprised me. But I think, yeah. you know, inflation, everybody's inflation is different. We can look at CPI or PPI or PCE and it's a number. Yeah, you can massage a core versus headline month over month versus year over year. But everybody's individual inflation is is quite different right. um you know my my parents who are elderly they don't drive a car anymore they live in senior living it doesn't have significant rent increases they don't buy food anymore so what they experience and and they're about to get a huge you know cola adjustment in their social security 
their lives around inflation is entirely different than somebody who's got to drive an hour to work every day and because they can't afford to eat out or are buying food and they've had to take on a second job like the multiple job holders to make ends meet simply because of the inflation problem. So um, inflation is, you know, was it, um, you know, everywhere a, a monetary phenomenon? It's a personal phenomenon. Um, do you own a home? Do you rent a home? I mean, the list goes on and on. Right. So I think everybody experiences inflation in a in a very different way. But to your point, there's there's so much money in the market that has only been around. I you you started. Uh, you're I'm I think 11 years older than you. So I started in. 86. So you're I, not, I, there's no way you're 11 years older than me. Really. I am. Well, you really? were born in 75. I was born in 64. I'm a baby wow. boomer. I'm a baby wow. boomer. <laughs> that's that's um, I, I still I still think that might be fake news. But uh, anyway. no, it's not. It's not not fake news. I just had my 58th. <laughs> but uh, wow. so I, you know, I've been around. I've been around the, the market uh, block. And although I wasn't an investor professional in this business in the 70s, uh, you know, I, I lived it yeah. um, as as a, as a kid, and yeah. there's just so little experience um, with this change. And I think one of the tells, by the way, that we may be in a more sort of secular shift to not something akin to the 70s. I think there are a lot of differences in terms of what were the inflation drivers in the 70s, what the reaction function was, but. It is important that for 30, for three decades, from really the mid 60s to the mid 90s, you had almost the entire period of time, you had a negative correlation between bond yields and stock prices. Right. Because that was more of an inflationary backdrop. It wasn't mm -hmm. high inflation all the time, but it was a more inflationary backdrop. So typically when bond yields were going up, it was because of a brewing inflation problem without commensurate significant pickup in growth. That's a bad environment for the equity market. Then you had this two decade pre-pandemic era where with very few exceptions, you had a positive correlation uh, between the two. We're back in negative correlation right. mode. When people ask me, is this a shift to a more inflationary backdrop? I think that's one of the metrics to keep an eye on. If we maintain this negative correlation, which can work in the other you know, beneficial way too, where declining, um, bond yields means rising stock prices. We we haven't hit that point in the cycle yet, but that point in the cycle will come. But I, I think that's indicative of just a, a very different secular environment than the two plus decades that predated the pandemic, which for many investors, that's beyond their investing uh, lifetime. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of lessons are being taught to younger, newer uh, people who are involved in markets. Yeah, it's, it's certainly changed um, my perspective this year. I mean, I tried to buy bonds twice. I tried to buy gold twice. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, um, I, I guess I'm not young enough again yet to make the same mistake three times. You know, you, <laughs> it's called a stop loss. So, you know, there's not one signal within my volatility adjusted signaling process that says that you should have been buying bonds in this most recent drubbing. Um, and that's what it is. You know, so to your point, you either have a rules-based strategy that stops you out or you don't. A lot of people don't, so they're getting wiped out on, on, on that front. Um, and, and humans are getting wiped out. Now, on slide uh, 99, like, while it's 100% it's true what you said, everybody ex experiences inflation uh, differently, uh, people with no money experience it explicitly, right? Like, this mm -hmm. is, you know, we go back to nine months ago, 
uh, and everyone's saying it's rainbows and puppy dogs, the consumer's in great shape. I mean, that, that's the bottom quintile of human beings in America. That's as bad as it's ever been. So that's yeah. why people are getting a second job. Um, the, the point on jobs, though, to me, and I want to take their, other people's questions here, is that you lose your job. Yeah, everybody has a different experience with that, but that's the worst experience you can have <laughs> economically. And that's the point. If the Fed's waiting for that, like, really? And the bulls are waiting for that. It's amazing. Like, the bulls are waiting for the, the, the number one thing that they shouldn't be waiting for. It basically is it. Well, you know, the Fed, I think I mentioned this already, you know, in the Fed's perfect world, they continue to squash openings without hitting the unemployment rate to a significant degree. And, you know, maybe they'll be successful. We did see a pretty epic drop in job openings, which, frankly, I, I overstate openings in general and did at, at the, the peak. So yep. I think the the spread between job openings as they're reported and the number of unemployed as it's reported, doesn't really represent the math that you should use to gauge labor market tightness. Mm-hmm. Um, even the, you know, the, the folks behind the JOLTS data concede that it probably overstates things just because we're in a more modern era of postings being spread out in multiple places and multiple forms. You know, even JOLTS concedes that if you, if you just set up a booth at a job fair, you know, mm-hmm. that counts as job openings. That's not necessarily <laughs> the case. Plus, especially in this environment, to use just the number of unemployed as the as the talent pool, so to speak, for all those job openings um, doesn't make a lot of sense because job switching is still quite rampant. So there are mm-hmm. there's a component of those with jobs that are part of the pool of potential labor for the job openings. So. Um, there, there's just so many vagaries in in the data uh, that I, I think the the labor market situation is probably a bit weaker and and a little more complicated for sure than what you see if you're just looking at you know the two first announced prints of, of payroll yeah, that's, that's so, and the unemployment rate. It's so unfortunate. It's so weak and it's so unfortunate in terms of like that level of analysis governs you know this what was a free capitalist society that I, I don't want to go off on that. I want to ask you the questions that people are asking. Um, here's a top rank, uh, rank if, by the way, if you have questions, um, fire them in the cube, top rank question right now for Lizanne um, is, you know, Lizanne, coming out of the 08, 09 crash, there were tech stocks like NVIDIA that were absolutely cheap. Seems like tech has so far to go before it's actually cheap again. You know, what sectors would you be looking at coming out of the cycle? So maybe, that question, Lizanne, kind of goes back to where you started, which it's easier a year from now, you know, than it is, you know, a day from now. Uh, maybe you take the a year from now on that. Well, so I'm I'm going to not answer with with sector answers. Um, so uh, at the beginning of this year, we went for the first time um, ever to a sector neutral. Uh, set of recommendations. Yep. No overweights, no underweights on really good. sectors, but <laughs> instead have focused much more. And we've been focused much more in the past year and will become even more focused on factor-based investing. And I, I think tied in with, with a more level playing field for active relative to passive or looking at equal rate relative to cap weight, I think for stock picking oriented 
investors, I think taking more of a factor approach as opposed to just in a blanket sense, you know, picking a sector or two that you think is going to define leadership. I think it's factors that are going to define leadership. And the good news there is from a screening perspective for certain factors or characteristics, you don't have to limit yourself to a sector or two because you've made that call. The The playing field is, is wide open. And the factors we have been emphasizing in general have a, a quality wrapper around them, mm-hmm. but also have both growth and value characteristics. And by growth and value, I'm talking lowercase g and v, not the indexes of growth and value, but the actual characteristics of growth and value. So in, you know, you said look at a year, I think over the next year, or at least the first half of the next year, we're still in that decelerating forward earnings growth mode, as you and I already talked about. Um, When you're in an environment where things, factors become more dear, those companies with them Mm. typically sell at a premium. So um, positive earnings uh, revisions in a declining um, earnings revisions kind of environment, Um, strong free cash flow, healthy balance sheet with lower debt and and higher cash on the balance sheet, um, uh, lower volatility. Uh, so I think that's the approach to take. And there's been more consistency in leadership when looking at factors than trying to do it at the sector or the style index level. You know, one example I, I often give when I explain how we distinguish between uppercase G and V, growth and value, meaning the indexes, and lowercase G and V, meaning the characteristics of growth and value, is to look at two sectors in, in this most recent cycle here, energy and utilities. Mm-hmm. They both basically live in the value indexes. Um, utilities at their recent peak were way more expensive than the S&P to a degree we've not seen in the past. It doesn't make them growth stocks, it just makes them expensive stocks that still happen to live in the value indexes. Energy, in turn, has been the growth area. You know, in second quarter, earnings growth was up 8%, as you talked about, but X Energy was down 2%. That's where the best growth factors have been. That doesn't mean Russell moved energy all into the growth indexes. They still largely live in the value indexes. And you can go back to October of 02. You were a deep value investor some of that deep value could be found in the tech stocks that had gotten absolutely hammered, um, even ones that were still in the growth indexes. So I just think we we have to get out of the habit of sort of just broad labeling on growth versus value indexes or, yes, you know, overweight this sector, underweight that sector. I think a more nuanced approach at the actual factor and characteristic level make a lot of sense. And you you can make those adjustments when you start to see a bottoming in PMIs and a bottoming in earnings estimates that's when you can go for a little more sort of leverage to the up cycle uh, and and you can be more flexible when taking a factor approach I love that answer you know I love that answer or if you don't know it now you know I mean it's this is a hundred percent the way that people should think about uh, investing on a full investing cycle basis. You have conditions, economic conditions that perpetu- perpetuate certain mar- market volatilities and certainly perpetuate certain outcomes for different companies with different characteristics. So that's an excellent answer. And, and, and hopefully, I mean, that's really where real stock picking comes in. You start to really put together your own basket as opposed to what's inside of an index or somebody else does. 
Um, and that's, um, that, that's, that's, that's really good. Uh, one, I think we have time for one more question. Um, have not, this is from uh, Sven Rosick, uh, have not all cycle downturns ended by even bigger fiscal and monetary stimulus? Or can a new cycle actually start by letting one run its course? <laughs> um, well, you know, we already touched on it in the 70s and 80s, you had fits and starts. So yep. you, you had cycles, you know, end when the Fed stopped raising rates and they cut, but then inflation sort of reared its ugly head again. So you had, you know, you had the, the mid 70s recession, you had the two early 80s recessions. So you had these condensed cycles because of this fits, these fits and starts in monetary policy. So you could look at that at one period of time and, and say it was probably would have been better if they had just sort of gotten to the point where inflation was contained and then stay there instead of this this up and down. Uh, it, the question is whether indeed we're going to, to see the, the Fed have kind of the guts to get to their destination and stay there as they're uh, suggesting. Um, but I just don't think that we can look at the cycles in the past 20 years as a as a proxy for what this one is is going to to look like. My, my view is that the Fed is going to try to stick the landing by trying to stay at the terminal rate, whatever that is. And we think it might be a bit lower than what the market is assuming now at four, five right. or four, six. But then stay there for a while, whether they've whether they've got the, the stomach to to do that. Um, is maybe another story. And whether Wall Street does. I mean, many leaders on Wall Street don't. Uh, many people have, obviously, a, a VIG or a financial incentive not to have a cycle, ever. Um, that's kind of sad and pathetic in my own view, but I get it. I mean, if that's what gets you paid. Uh, so I do think it's going to be a really interesting time for all of us. I mean, I, I still take the under on the 11-year-over uh, model that you just threw out there. But like, I, I think people like you, first of all, there are very few of you, uh, you're getting better and better as you go further into this. this as I cycle. get older and older. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you really, I mean, I think this is as good as I've seen you play the game. It's awesome. Uh, and I think people uh, are, are, are most likely going to be sending you a bunch of thank yous on, on Twitter today. And, and I'm certainly going to thank you myself. Well, so. thank you for your, your kind and overly generous uh, comments. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're crushing it. And, and I really, I genuinely wish and hope that, like, as we come out of this cycle, more Americans, more people in the world, like pay more attention to you in the morning. Everybody has a choice. There's a lot of noise. Um, she is grinding, and I mean grinding every single day, uh, putting the data up on the board, and she's as data dependent as they come. So thank you, thank you very much. We appreciate thank it. Thank you, Keith. Thanks. She is Liz Ann Saunders. How good is she? She's awesome. Uh, next up, we get the European guy, Daniel Lacaille. Thanks for listening to Real Conversations, brought to you by Hedgeye. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. 
Hedge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedge subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.